I'm an Ohio boy, and you know, for me, seeing the Everglades for the first time, it was it was pretty special. But I wasn't so sure about alligators. And there was one trip where uh, we were working out in the marsh, and I was standing in the marsh and just kind of readjusted and uh, was moving toward the boat, and I realized I stepped on something, and um, this little alligator just calmly sticks its head up above water, and I realized. I was standing on its tail, and it it didn't spook. That was Steve Davis with his first Everglades experience. Alligators, black bears, and seagrass today on the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. Hey, how's it going today? Thanks for stopping by the Fly Fishing Show. Please take a moment and share this episode with one other person, or maybe two, uh, you think could use a little information on this important area. Really fun topic today. You can just click down in whatever app you're using, click that share button, and uh, send a text over uh, to somebody right now who could use a blast of some uh, education. This is some good stuff today. Steve Davis from the Everglades Foundation is here to walk us through the basics of the $16 billion restoration project that is gaining traction Uh, down south. We find out why wetlands are critical in Florida and around the U.S. We hear about a lake that I can't quite pronounce and why this $2 billion project is a key to the whole process. And we even get another track for our Spotify playlist at the end. Steve gives us a little bonus track. Before we get started, let's hear from our sponsor. Togan's Fly Shop, providing superior products at an affordable price. An amazing resource for fly tying materials, tools, and fishing accessories. Head over to wetflyswing.com slash Togan's to get started today. You support this podcast by clicking over to take a look at Togan's online. That's wetflyswing.com slash Togan's. T-O-G-E-N-S. Togan's. Without further ado, here is Steve Davis from EvergladesFoundation.org. How's it going, Steve? It's going well, Dave. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for taking a little time uh, today to chat about uh, a pretty major issue. Uh, we're, well, at least I am on the uh, on the West Coast, but we've got lots of listeners on the East Coast and people down in your neck of the woods down there. So we're going to dig into the uh, Everglades, uh, some of the issues there, some of the work you're doing and all that stuff, because I want to have people... Uh, it's a pretty important area. So, but before we get there, talk uh, briefly about how you got into uh, the Everglades Foundation. Well, I've been working as a scientist in the Everglades uh, around Florida Bay since 1995, and uh, working on my PhD, I went from there to be a professor at Texas A&M University for about 10 years. But I was still doing Everglades science, um, and it was roughly 2008-2009 that I started looking for other opportunities. And there was a position that I felt like I was perfectly suited for in 2009 to work at the Everglades Foundation as a a wetland ecologist. And that was my background. So I've been with the foundation a little over 12 years now. And uh, now I'm the chief science officer. So I'm running our science program and uh, just really enjoying it and seeing the the benefits of our work in moving Everglades restoration forward. Nice. And the Everglades Foundation is definitely a group uh, I want to dig into a little more as we go. And But I'm curious on the wetlands, because this is a number that, you know, I kind of, you throw around, sometimes you hear out there like, um, you know, in the country, in the U.S., we've lost 90% of our wetlands. I mean, is there a number you can give us? I mean, maybe talk about the Everglades and then just talk generally. Is there any accuracy to the amount of just total wetlands we've lost in this country? Well, there are fairly regular wetland inventories that are done uh, led by U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And it's on the order of 60% or so of of wetland loss across the country. There are places like Europe that have lost 90% of their wetlands. They've been developed, obviously, much longer. So uh, we've we've learned over the last couple of decades that uh, protecting and even restoring these wetlands is in our best interest uh, for a variety of reasons. But uh, the Everglades is, is roughly the same as the national average. We've lost a little over half of the Everglades, but we have quite a bit left still to work with. 
There you go. And give us a little rundown, just a quick on for people that, you know, don't know uh, on the wetlands. You know, why are wetlands important? Obviously, they're important for, uh, you know, lots of species. But what is what would you say if you had to give like the elevator pitch? Why, why do we need wetlands? They're really incredible as ecosystems because they are transitional between obviously lakes and rivers and coastal waters and uh, transitioning to uplands. So th they're right at that interface of where uh, water can move uh, different times of the year or, or accumulate. And so one of the most valuable aspects of wetlands is that they help to absorb stormwater flows or high tidal flows or storm surges along the coast. Uh, they're, they're really a, a buffer in many instances. They provide habitat, obviously. A lot of juvenile fish species and shellfish utilize mangroves as habitat There's a, or, or wetlands in general. Um, there's a lot of complexity there. Uh, they filter nutrients. They capture sediment. Um, some cases, they're tied to water supplies. So uh, for a variety of reasons, we've known wetlands to be important, but increasingly with our understanding of climate change, we know that one thing wetlands are really good at is capturing carbon and storing it in the vegetation and in the soils. So um, as we talk about climate change and climate mitigation, protecting wetlands is critically important because there's a lot of carbon in there that we want to stay in there, but we also know these wetlands when they're functioning, provide all these other services, but they also take up carbon from the atmosphere. That's huge. Okay. So that, thanks. That gives a little uh, quick snippet on, you know, bringing everybody into it. So wetlands are all around the country and we've lost almost half of them uh, in some areas. Um, talk about the Everglades. And, you know, again, this is going to be hard to, to boil down everything into, you know, an hour for this episode, but talk about the uh, the problem. If you had to nail down the problem there, what is the problem and what sort of uh, steps are you guys taking to address that? Sure. The, the problem with the Everglades is that we started draining it 100 years ago. And at that time, we didn't see the value of this ecosystem. And we certainly didn't realize what South Florida would become, whether it's South Beach, uh, that obviously gets a lot of attention in Miami, the Florida Keys, uh, Fort Lauderdale. These communities really, we, we had no idea what they would become 100 years ago. So the, the best interest in South Florida at the time was, was land to develop or to farm uh, with a year-round growing season um, at you know rich muck soils, the, the only challenge was draining those wetlands to get at the land. And over time, we realized that these wetlands are pretty important. They're connected to our waterways. Uh, they're connected to our water supply in South Florida. Nine million people depend on this ecosystem today for their water. Um, and, and as we grew into a tourism-based economy, which depends heavily on fishing, on boating, on water-based recreation, We've realized that those drainage efforts and replumbing efforts, uh, we had to reverse the impacts to a great extent. And that's what Everglades restoration is. It's, it's replumbing the ecosystem to where water can flow the way it did naturally from Lake Okeechobee down to Florida Bay and the Florida Keys rather than dumping that water to tide. Gotcha. Okay. So that, and that gives us a, another perspective there. Talk about uh, uh, some of the species. So, I mean, are there, I'm not sure as far as ESA listed uh, fish, let's, let's just start there. Are there a number of fish or talk about any, any kind of endangered species in that area? Anything for what are you focusing on? Well, we take the 30,000 foot perspective with restoration and it, it's, it, it certainly important to focus on species, but with restoration, it's, it's fundamentally about replumbing the system, getting the water right. And that's both the quality and the quantity of that water. And, and when we do that, we know that all species that we associate with the Everglades will benefit to some degree. And fish, um, from the smallest of fish, the mosquito fish, 
the mollies, the, um, the, the variety of things that you see growing up in the marshes of the Everglades and ultimately become prey for wading birds and alligators. Um, that, that's where it begins. It, it's protecting that base of the food chain across the river of grass. Uh, we know that areas that dry out too frequently, we obviously lose that. But as you get down toward the coast and certainly in the deeper areas of the Everglades, uh, largemouth bass uh, and then transitioning into the estuarine waters where, of course, you get snook and redfish and, and uh, bonefish, tarpon, permit uh, around Florida Bay. It, it just becomes a hot spot for fishing. And a lot of it depends on the food that the Everglades produces or supports in the estuary. Okay. So, and that, I love that because you guys are taking it just a broader perspective and that probably helps for connecting, you know, the public to it, right? Saying that it's not just about one species of fish. It's about, it's about the people, right? Having good water quality. Um, what are other things that are holding you back from success here? You know, it seems like, I know this has been, you've had a good campaign going here, but you know, I'm not sure what all your goals are, but what are the big things that, that are keeping you from meeting those goals? Or do you feel like you're almost there? Well, I don't think we're almost there, but we're certainly making progress. Um, and to your first question, it's all about funding at this point. We have a restoration plan. It's called the Comprehensive Everglades Restoration Plan, passed in 2000, bipartisan support. And to this day, Everglades restoration, certainly in the state of Florida, maintains a high level of bipartisan support, and, and that's noteworthy in these times. Uh, and at the federal level, we still see strong bipartisan support. Everglades Restoration is a state-federal partnership, and it's a 50-50 cost share for this roughly $16 billion program. Jeez. Um, so the plan was passed in 2000. We were pretty slow in getting started because it was it was a monumental undertaking. It's still the largest ecosystem restoration program in the world. And there's a lot at stake, obviously. Over the last 10 years, we've really uh, started to hit our stride. We've seen key projects uh, break ground. We've seen a few come to completion. One example is the Kissimmee River Restoration. That is uh, a project that just had a ribbon cutting earlier this year, where they basically took that straightened canal and restored the meanders back to that river uh, just north of Lake Okeechobee. And it's an incredible success. Uh, to the south, the bridges along Tamiami Trail, US 41, that mark that boundary between the water conservation areas and Everglades National Park now allow for flows to move freely into Everglades National Park. Now that's key to getting water down to Florida Bay. So we're seeing projects uh, moving along and we've got a couple of key projects that are in uh, an early stage of construction. The most important is the Everglades Reservoir south of Lake Okeechobee. Uh, this is a $2 billion reservoir. So obviously, as a single project, it's very costly. But we also know that that single project delivers the most bang for buck in terms of getting clean water flowing south, reducing those polluted releases from Lake Okeechobee to the Caloosahatchee Estuary to the St. Lucie Estuary. Um, so that, that project uh, does a lot. And so we're, we're delighted to see that project moving forward, but we're also seeing evidence that without the necessary federal funding, that project is going to be delayed potentially until 2029, 2030 for completion. So at this point, we're working to, to get these projects planned and, and moving along, but the pace of construction will dictate our near-term success, and that's all dependent upon funding. Okay. And we're, you know, you're describing some of these areas and kind of the waterways. Is there a place that you could go and maybe get a look at a map or just get an idea of how all this is coming together? 
Yes, we have maps on our website that illustrate these locations, uh, evergladesfoundation.org. Uh, we, we have a lot of resources, fact sheets available where folks can get that information. Uh, but to, to understand the scope of the challenge, the Everglades watershed begins just south of Orlando, right about where Disney is. Uh, and then you're talking about 100 miles south from there to Lake Okeechobee. Lake Okeechobee is a 700-plus square mile freshwater lake in the center of the state that is really the heart of the ecosystem. And then south from Lake Okeechobee down to the edge of Florida Bay and the Florida Keys, it's another 100 miles. So it's it's a massive ecosystem and really speaks to the the need for this funding and 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 really the costs associated with these projects. Gotcha. And, and you talk a lot about. I mean, sixteen billion dollars is, is a crazy number. But are there other? You mentioned Disney. Are, are there other private uh, companies that are that see a, a benefit in supporting you know the the movement here? We see strong support and and growing support from. Everything from fishing guides to hotels and restaurants to chambers of commerce, uh, there is a, a growing uh, support for Everglades restoration because people realize that it's tied to the quality of our water. And we've seen a number of instances over the last five to 10 years with toxic blue-green algae uh, exacerbation of red tide from these polluted releases to the West Coast. And and people are starting to connect those dots with the issues further south in Florida Bay, where you may recall in 2015, we had a massive seagrass die-off event in Florida Bay. Uh, roughly 50,000 acres of seagrass died off in some of the, the, the most prime fishing habitat uh, in, in the backcountry of Everglades National Park. And so as people are connecting these dots, they realize that the solution to all these problems is Everglades restoration. So we're increasingly seeing that support that you you described. Okay. Yeah. So you've got, so it took a little while, it sounds like. And, and did you, I mean, at what point has this been going on for like 20 years or more now? Or, or what was the big thing that got people, you know, you think about it because we've had the Clean Water Act was quite a while ago. Um, did it take a while to get to this point where you got some movement? And why was that? Why did it take so long? That's a great question. And and I think it was a few things. So what, what really started the restoration effort was again in Florida Bay. Uh, so I just described that seagrass die-off we experienced in 2015. The only other time that a seagrass die-off of that magnitude had been documented was in the late 1980s, early 1990s. And that was a larger seagrass die-off that occurred over multiple years. And it led to about 10 years of blue-green algae blooms in Florida Bay. And that just decimated the fishing industry in the Florida Keys. And it was that, the outcry from that event that led to the planning for Everglades restoration. That is the, the really genesis of our organization, the Everglades Foundation. That event in Florida Bay is what led to the formation of, of my organization. And it's also what really brought science to bear from the beginning, because our co-founders consulted with scientists to understand what the heck was going on in Florida Bay. And the scientists knew that the Everglades had been replumbed. They knew that there wasn't enough fresh water going south. And they knew that the seagrass in Florida Bay depended upon that balance of fresh water coming from the river of grass with salt water in the Gulf of Mexico. And and that was the perfect recipe for supporting a healthy Florida Bay. But um, when that event occurred, I think that started the movement to get the comprehensive Everglades restoration plan developed and then ultimately signed into law by President Clinton, one of his last acts as president in December of, of 2000. Oh, wow. There you go. So that's interesting because, yeah, Clinton has, uh, you know, he had some connection. I remember, you know, out here we've got a big 
the the logging right is a big issue out in the west and i think he was involved in getting conversations going there because that was the big i mean that's the biggest struggle right a lot of times is trying to get people talking sometimes it gets political do you, you it sounds like you guys are at a place where, where politics aren't really it's not even that anymore now it's more i mean what, what is what's holding you back now so you, you're where you are now things it sounds like they're going well what's holding you back from taking it to the finish line and really coming out of this and saying, you know, you, you, you got to where you wanted to get. It's funding. Um, it's, it's all about funding and the army Corps of engineers is the federal, uh, representative in Everglades restoration. The South Florida water management district is the state partner in that process. What we've seen over the last uh, three to four years now from the state is record level of funding. And so the commitment is there to Everglades restoration on the state side. At the federal level, we're still lagging behind and not seeing the, you know, the 50-50 partnership playing out. And this reservoir that I described, it's, it's going to cost a few billion dollars to build that. And obviously, if you're, you know, <laughs> taking the the, the minimum payment approach to the reservoir, it's going to take us a decade or more to build. What we need to see are large investments over the next three to four years in order to get that project built sooner. And, and we know that our, our economy really can't wait because of the impacts that we've seen from blue-green algae, uh, how that's decimated communities on both coasts when those releases are made. It wrecks oyster beds, uh, seagrasses, and we're seeing the impacts of that, you know, translate to higher trophic levels, you know, things like manatees. There's a lot of news that's been coming out about how manatees are basically starving and manatees depend on seagrass. And so if we're not protecting our seagrasses, then we're, we're really undermining the things that Florida is most known for. And that's our our water and, and our environment. There you go. Okay. So, and you mentioned the, the seagrass, the blue green algae. Can you describe just, uh, again, kind of briefly the blue green algae describe how that works and why that's a problem exactly? Well, it comes back to the fact that algae are, are really plants. They're microscopic plants and like plants on land or crops that you're trying to grow, they, do better with fertilizer, with nutrients that we add to the landscape to make them grow better and faster. Uh, when those nutrients, primarily phosphorus, but also to some degree nitrogen, when those nutrients run off of our agricultural lands, um, and in some cases it's uh, animal waste, in some cases it's septic where you have partially treated human waste getting into our waterways, that stuff accumulates. And it accumulates to the point where these microscopic blue-green algae in the water column uh, do better. And they will basically flourish with that nutrient pollution to the point where they grow so densely that it blocks out the light for these things that are growing more slowly on the bottom like seagrasses. So it, it, it's, it's, it's a, a result of our activities on the land that lead to the accumulation of these nutrients in our waterways. And once they're there, um, it's difficult to, to undo the damage. And so the, obviously the, the solution is to control these nutrients at the source as much as we can. Okay. So then that's part of this. So and I, and I don't understand completely the whole whole process. Obviously, there's a lot involved, but that that is one thing. Going back to the source and trying to just minimize, or is it just minimizing, or is it treating, or is it just trying to remove uh, fertilizers completely from the system? Well, it, those three processes you described they become more expensive as you go from dealing with the problem at the source, so basically stopping the pollution versus trying to deal with it on the back end and ultimately trying to remove it. That's very costly. And we don't have the technologies right now to do that cost effectively and also to do it safely to where we're protecting our environment at the same time we're trying to, to fix it. Um, but yeah, once these organisms start to flourish and, and some of them are toxin forming, meaning 
they will actually release toxins out into the water that not only are, are detrimental to fish and invertebrates and marine mammals and sea turtles, but they're also uh, potentially lethal to human beings. Uh, some of these are neurotoxins, some are uh, liver toxins. So it's, you know, that's huge. Okay. So I think I have a pretty good feel for, you know, the challenges and obviously the funding. So people, would it be beneficial for people that are listening now that, um, you know, want to help out to call their, you know, kind of their political folks in, in uh, you know, in Washington senators and things like that and let them know that they support this? Or what would you tell somebody if they want to like do something today? Well, I think education is the key. As a, as a former educator, you realize that that's how things get done when people understand the significance of the issue and they can then learn what some of the uh, most prudent actions are. And certainly your vote is one, your voice is, is another, uh, and just being engaged on these issues, whether it's at the community and local level or the state and national level, our environment, our water, th these are not partisan issues. And we try to take partisan politics out of everything we do because this is about, this is about us. It's about our future. Uh, it's about our economy. And so um, you can start at your own property level and work your way up from there if you want to be engaged. And uh, it, it really is important that people understand the significance of this. Let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Togan's Fly Shop, providing superior quality products at an affordable price, an amazing resource for fly tying materials, tools, and fly fishing accessories. Togan's has you covered when looking for unique in-house products, but also supports and supplies materials and tools from other leading fly brands you know and trust. Togan's is now offering their mystery fly tying box, where they simplify the process for you in choosing materials. You're only one click away from these hand-picked subscription tying boxes that are packed with value at almost half the cost. And I recently made a order through Togans, and the experience was perfect. After a uh, recent trip uh, nipping for trout, I had to replace my tungsten beads and some jig hooks and a few other items. The products arrived in a couple of days from Togans with a nice little card, a bonus value, and a welcome note from the Togans family. Since 2005, Togans has been over-delivering on price and customer service, so it's time to discover for yourself what the buzz is all about. Head over to wetflyswing.com slash Togans and take a look at their diverse selection of products today. You can support this podcast by clicking over to take a look at Togans online. That's wetflyswing.com slash T-O-G-E-N-S. Togans. Okay, now back to the show. So if you're talking to right now a agricultural company or a farm, you know, whatever out there, what would you tell them, you know, if they came to you and said, hey, we want to help uh, do things better? Is there a good, clear path for them to, to move forward with a different um, plan on how they do things? Well, that, that's a great question. And there are many farmers out there that are uh, engaged on this issue and doing what they can. And what that often entails is abiding by a set of best management practices where depending on what the farmer is growing or raising, there are a lot of things that they can do on their land, managing their land in a way to reduce the runoff of pollution, uh, to try to retain water on those lands as long as possible without obviously undermining their, their investment. And what we're also learning with climate change is that there are also things that farmers can do to protect carbon in those soils uh, to where it doesn't get released out to the atmosphere. So there, there's a lot that can be done at that level. And when you aggregate all the, the farmlands across the country, uh, there's obviously strength in numbers there. There's, there's a lot of capacity. So the more farmers engage on these issues and do what they can. And, and again, there, there are a lot that are engaged in this already. Um, that really helps to protect our environment. Perfect. And what about, um, as far as, 
you know, you guys are leading, obviously, it sounds like the Everglades Foundation. Are there other groups similar? Who else would you give a shout out to that are that's doing good work down there helping the, you know, the, the cause and, and the mission there? Well, there are a lot of groups and we are the only group that's focused on Everglades restoration at that 30,000 foot perspective. Uh, but there are a lot of groups that we work with uh, within that arena that have uh, a stake in, you know, different aspects of the Everglades ecosystem. And the first group that comes to mind is Captains for Clean Water. Uh, this is uh, an amazing organization. Two guys got fed up uh, with just how we were polluting our water. Those Lake Okeechobee releases basically killing their business. These two guides had, had been in uh, that occupation for quite some time and decided that it, we need to start a movement. And the movement, Captains for Clean Water, has grown by leaps and bounds over the last five plus years now to the point where these guys are recognized in both Tallahassee, Washington, D.C. Um, they've got guides all around uh, the state of Florida and, and beyond. Uh, that are engaged on this issue, becoming more educated, and they're really uh, making a strong push towards building these projects that we know will deliver benefits throughout South Florida, and at the same time, protecting uh, their industry, which is directly tied to the health of the environment. Okay, and and go back to the Lake Ochocobe, or uh, <laughs> pronounce that again for me. Okeechobee. Okeechobee, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that is, I mean, a big part of this. Describe again, just uh, talk a little bit about how that fits into the mix. It's got essentially a lot of pollution. And then when these releases come out, it creates the blue green algae, kind of uh, the big blooms there. Is that how this works? Or describe a little bit more about the lake. Why is this such a key part of this? And what is the project? Exactly. So the lake is really at the center of all of this. And Lake Okeechobee used to receive flows from the Kissimmee Basin further north. Uh, that meandering Blackwater River would empty into the lake. It was a clear lake at the time. Uh, and when the lake would fill up each wet season, and we get upwards of five feet of rainfall a year in South Florida, uh, when that lake would fill up, it would spill over to the south. And the south was this river of grass. That water would fan out more than 50 miles wide and flow as a sheet all the way down to the coast. So that's how it used to work. Water didn't go east and west. Um, we then in the 60s and 70s started straightening the Kissimmee River. That meandering river that was 100 miles long, they straightened it into about a 50 mile canal. And what that allowed was agriculture to occur across the floodplain. and over decades, we know what happens when you farm along a former watershed. You All that pollution runs into the canal, which mainlines into Lake Okeechobee. So over time, the lake became polluted. And at the same time, we started farming immediately south of Lake Okeechobee in an area called the Everglades Agricultural Area uh, that's primarily sugar farms today. So that water couldn't go south anymore from Lake Okeechobee, and instead it was sent east and west. And over time, as the lake became more polluted, those releases, which are unnatural in terms of the volume, we're talking billions of gallons of water in some cases per day that are sent east and west to those coasts, and also carrying uh, just devastating loads of phosphorus pollution along with it, and oftentimes algae. You can actually see the algae trailing down these canals into the estuaries where it just devastates uh, the, the ecology, uh, impacts the fisheries, impacts the economy. Um, so over time, as those releases have gotten worse, there's been more calls for action. And the call is Everglades restoration, which helps to redirect that lake water that we know is polluted back to the south. And so people might wonder, why would you want to send polluted water to the Everglades? We're not. We're, we're actually filtering that water through what are called stormwater treatment areas. Now, these are 
engineered wetlands that are uh, managed to remove phosphorus pollution. That's another valuable service that wetlands provide, but these are engineered wetlands and it's about a 70,000 acre network of treatment wetlands. It's the largest treatment wetland system in the world. Uh, it's come at a cost of about $2 billion itself. But that's how we clean water before we send it south to the Everglades so that by the time it gets into the, the marshes that we're trying to protect, uh, it's meeting the water quality standard all the way down to Florida Bay. So that's, that's really the mechanism that describes the problem, but also the solution. So, and that's the, that's that water historically goes into that 50 mile wide area, which is all wetlands and a mix of all it's, it's essentially the estuary that you're sending it in. And now you're trying to restore just that process. And Lake Ochakobi uh, is right smack dab in the middle of everything. I mean, without that project getting restored, you're not going to have a, a more, um, I, I don't know if you'd say, would you say natural system or would, is that what you guys are going for? A more restored natural system? Well, we're aiming for the functionality of the natural system. We know it's going to be a managed system moving forward, but we can do much better in restoring the functionality of this managed ecosystem. And, and th that's based on decades of science and observation and understanding of how the Everglades works. And that you know, also tells us exactly what it needs. And it, it needs more water. Uh, it needs to stay hydrated year round. Um, and so all the species that we were talking about earlier, uh, they'll benefit from that. Gotcha. This is interesting. I love how you broke that down and it gives us a perspective of, of kind of how, how it all works and probably similar to some other areas. I'm curious on, on some of the challenges might be, you know, this issue as you talk out, you know, I'm not sure how you guys do outreach, but how do you keep all this from not being uh, boring, right? You, you, sometimes you think about this stuff as like, oh, who's going to listen to this? Maybe people are going to turn it off, not listen to this podcast sort of thing. But what would you tell, do you guys have anything you do to keep this thing interesting and, and engaging for people so they stay with it? We do. And that's, a, um, that's obviously a constant challenge is keeping people engaged on this issue because it, it plays out very slowly uh, in some sense. Um, the first 10 years I mentioned, we, we really didn't get a whole lot done with Everglades restoration, but it's, it's understanding the benefits that this restoration program provides to South Florida. It's being able to see the you know, the bigger picture. And so that's why we really try to communicate as much as we can, the bigger picture issues related to this. And it's about our environment. It's about Florida's future. And these aren't understatements, uh, you know, or oh, I should say these aren't overstatements. We are directly tied to that ecosystem in South Florida. Our water supply is recharged by the Everglades. We pull our water from the ground that had been in the Everglades maybe the week before. So when you turn on your faucet in South Florida, that's really water that's been filtered and recharged by the Everglades. Uh, our fishing, our boating around South Florida, um, it depends on this ecosystem. And we really uh, just begun to understand that over the last 10 to 20 years. So it's, it's getting people more educated and more engaged. And, and we do that through our supporters. Uh, we also do it through an Everglades literacy program that we've developed, a K through 12 curriculum, uh, where we're training teachers and getting students. I think we've reached over 150,000 students in, in Florida now to understand the importance of this ecosystem that is oftentimes right in their backyard. There you go. Do you see a, you know, I, I guess I've kind of asked this before, but I'm just curious when you look at your career and then you look at, I'm not sure how old you are, how long you're going to be in this, you know, kind of in this process, but do you see this as in your lifetime, seeing this thing kind of um, coming to a, you know, uh, kind of like a project, right? Coming to an end, you're wrapping things up, or is this something where a hundred years out, you still see there's going to be tons of things we can adjust and change and fix as we go? Well, that that's a, very good question. And we actually get that quite often. If we can complete Everglades restoration, there are signs that we can complete it within the next 10 to 15 years. Um, and of course, that depends on funding. 
16 billion, right? 16 billion. Well, we've already invested quite a bit. So what remains is about, I believe, maybe 8 billion, 7 or 8 billion. Um, so we're, we're, we're halfway there. But South Florida is, is a growing, you know, Florida is a growing state. South Florida is still growing. And we're going to have challenges to face beyond Everglades restoration. One of the issues that we're dealing with right now is a proposal to expand what's called the urban development boundary in Miami-Dade County. Uh, and as that urban development boundary moves, potentially, it threatens the very environment that we're trying to restore and ultimately protect. Um, I talked about the pollution problem earlier, phosphorus pollution. Some of our lands have a legacy of phosphorus pollution that will continue to contaminate our waterways for decades into the future. So as an organization, we're certainly focused on restoration right now, but we know that our long-term future is about protecting uh, what we've restored and protecting what's left of this ecosystem, protecting those aspects of our economy that touch on it. So I think we're not unique in that regard because there are other organizations that are also looking ahead and realizing that uh, environmental protection is going to be a cornerstone of our country's future because so much of what we do and so much of what we love is connected to our environment. Yeah, like I said, go all the way back to the Clean Water Act, right? Imagine if that process, you know, wouldn't have been uh, enacted back in the day, right? I mean, who knows where we'd be at now? But um, I'm curious, as we t start to take this out of here, you know, just from your perspective and for folks that maybe don't live down in that area, are, are you right in, in the heart of it or where do you live down there, kind of just generally? Actually, I, I live in a, a very urbanized area of Miami. It's um, called Edgewater. It's next to Wynwood. It's just north of downtown and we're right on Biscayne Bay, which uh, has had its issues uh, with water quality over the last few years, documented fish kills, uh, seagrass die-off. Um, so I feel it every day. And our organization is also in it every day. We're based in uh, Miami, just south of, of downtown. Um, and that's one of our biggest challenges, getting more folks in Miami to understand the importance of this. And we've got a mayor that's receptive now. Uh, well, we, we, we've had mayors that are also receptive to it, but, um, you know, just understanding the importance of protecting uh, what we've got and, and focused on restoration. I, I think increasingly we're seeing engagement at the local community level, whether it's uh, Monroe County and the Florida Keys, Broward County, which is where Fort Lauderdale is, uh, the East and West Coast communities that I described earlier. Uh, there's there's a growing chorus of folks that want to see this done, and you know we're we're just glad, and uh, we'll do whatever we can to to make that happen. What do you love about um, you know uh, living down in that area? Is there something you know that keep? I mean, obviously, you're working on this this project, which is uh, important, but just the, the area itself. What, what do you what do you love about you know kind of Florida and, and all that area? Well, you can't beat the winters. That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And, it, you know, it, it's really the, the environment. That's what drew me to South Florida. It was the opportunity to do research in the Everglades and see some of these incredibly unique habitats and, and really to understand the interaction of water and habitat, just the vegetation, the landscapes, all of that. But there's also the cultural side that makes it very interesting for me. And um, the diversity that we have in South Florida. Um, it, it's, it's really kind of a special place. And even Miami-Dade County is uh, very different from other counties in South Florida. You, you, you really feel the Latin American culture and, and hear the languages, hear the music, certainly experience the food. And it's really an interesting place, but we also have our traffic. We have our other issues that most major cities have, but uh, the net effect is, is it's a wonderful place to live and a great community. Gotcha. And if somebody was going to be heading down there to take advantage of, you know, some of the 
the natural environment, would you say, where would you point them? What, what would you tell them if they wanted to do a trip out there, maybe a road trip, maybe fly in and just experience kind of nature? Where would you tell them to go? I would recommend probably three things. One is take a drive across Tamiami Trail from the East Coast to the West Coast, whether you're going from Miami to Naples or Naples to Miami. Um, it's just an amazing experience. Uh, you go through Big Cypress National Preserve. It's a two-lane road, so I've seen black bears out there, lots of wading birds. You see alligators all along the road or along the roadside. Um, you drive through the Miccosukee tribe of Indians, uh, their lands. Uh, it's just, it's a really neat experience. Uh, I would also recommend driving into Everglades National Park from uh, around Florida City, Homestead area. Take the main park road all the way down to Flamingo. Uh, that is another really incredible experience to where you, you finish that trip, you're right on the edge of Florida Bay. Um, and then, of course, an airboat ride or uh, engaging a fishing guide and getting out into either Biscayne Bay, Florida Bay, around the Keys, back country, the Everglades City on the West Coast. There's just so many opportunities out on the water to just get lost and experience some of the most incredible nature and fishing you've ever experienced. It's, it's really neat. Amazing. What about, I'm curious, you know, you mentioned alligators a couple of times. For somebody again, who doesn't know much about alligators, have you had much of a connection in your work uh, to alligators, either research or anything like that, or had any crazy stories with an encounter with an alligator? The one that comes to mind is uh, when, when I was a graduate student, actually a couple experiences, just, you know, I'm an Ohio boy. And, you know, for me, seeing the Everglades for the first time, it was pretty special, but I wasn't so sure about alligators and there was one trip where uh, we were working out in the marsh and I was standing in the marsh and just kind of readjusted and uh, was moving toward the boat and I realized I stepped on something and um, this little alligator just calmly sticks its head up above water and I realized I was standing on its tail and it, it didn't spook. But uh, I was pretty much walking on water to get back on the airboat. <laughs> wow. Is it, I mean, probably like a lot of wild animals, you know, they're, they're not trying to kill you, obviously, unless they feel no. like they're in danger. Is that, that was the kind of situation it kind of knew that you weren't going to kill it. So it didn't have to bite your, your leg off. That's not even entering their mind. They don't view people as a source of food. I mean, we're much too large and just unusual for them. Right. Yeah, if you know, baby birds, turtles, fish, uh, yeah, just like anything, yeah. I mean, again, taking the, the West Coast example is you know, sometimes people freak out, you know, thinking about cougars in the wild, but you know, your chances of getting bit or killed by a cougar are pretty much zero, you know, it's it never happens, yeah. It's it, don't feed them, stay away from their babies, and you're going to be in good shape. All right, Steve. Well, uh, give us one. I got one random one for you here as we go out. You mentioned music, and um, I would love to hear if you have a favorite, uh, either you know, band or type of music. What do you listen to down there? Or are you more of a podcast listener? You know, I, I'm starting to listen to more podcasts, but I, I've just been a music, a lover of music from the beginning. I listen to a lot of different things. Um, I really dig Sturgill Simpson. Um, started listening to him right at the very beginning. And so there's a little bit of the country sound there. I love Ryan Bingham, who's also like Texas style music, but at the same time, I, I like rock. I like Foo Fighters. I, um, so it, it's a, it's a pretty broad palette with me, but, um, I'll add a, uh, we have a little uh, show notes uh, music uh, track on uh, wetflyswing.com slash music. I'll add a, a link there to one of those groups so we can add you to the mix and people can check out our wet fly swing uh, uh, mix. But um, all right, Steve, well, uh, the next uh, kind of, uh, what are we looking at here? Give us a like next year. I mean, you mentioned like 10, 15 years, but talk about the next year or next few years. What, what do you foresee? What's your prediction? How is this going to go down the next couple year or two? Well, we're right on the cusp of seeing a, a big success really over the next week. And that is uh, the new plan for operating Lake Okeechobee. It's called the Lake Okeechobee System Operating Manual. Uh, really looks like the Corps of Engineers is going to 
propose a new plan for managing the lake that will help to cut discharge to both coasts and will allow more water to go south to the Everglades. So even before we get some of these projects across the finish line, just changing the rules for operating the lake will result in big benefits. So that's going to happen soon. Um, at the same time, we're going to start to see some of these projects coming across the finish line. Uh, some of these treatment marshes that the state's building, finishing Tamiami Trail, the reservoir over the next couple of years, if we can get the funding. So there's going to be a lot of boxes uh, checked over the next year to two, three years that will result in big benefits across South Florida. So a lot to be optimistic about. Amazing. Well, that's good to leave it off on a good note there. So EvergladesFoundation.org is the best place for people to connect with you and find out what they can do. Yep. All right, Steve. Well, hey, I'll, I'll let you get out of here. I appreciate you taking the time today and sharing, um, you know, filling us in on this knowledge. Uh, there's so many important topics around the country. You know, this is one of the big ones. So I, uh, it's been fun spending some time with you and we'll keep in touch. Great. Thanks a lot, Dave. Appreciate it. So there you go. If you want to find all the show notes, all the links, everything else we cover, head over to wetflyswing.com slash 270, uh, Again, reminder, uh, if you get a chance, just click in your app down there, click that share button, pop it up, uh, copy that link, and send it to one other person um, that wants to learn about uh, this important, this very important topic. I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to hear how we're doing. Um if you get a chance, this is kind of a, a new series I'm trying to start up a little more this year, uh, this coming year, that's going to be focused on protecting our planet. So if you've got a topic uh, anywhere around the world, doesn't have to be in the U.S., uh, you think is important, definitely uh, reach out to me, Dave, at wetflyswing.com and let me know. I'd love to dig into it. And if you know um, a person, that would be even better. That's uh, similar to Steve, how Steve uh, did a good job kind of painting the picture today. So uh, that's all I have for you today. I'm going to let you get out of here and let me get out of here. And want to thank you again for listening to the very end and for supporting the podcast. Um, love it. You know, these conservation episodes are a passion uh, for me, definitely. So appreciate you uh, listening till the end. Until we meet again, uh, maybe on the river or maybe online. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.